These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Around the time of the Amorites, there had been enough cultural shift that the people really started to look back at the Sumerian culture as something old that had passed on, which gave it a certain mystique. It's uncertain for how long today's stories existed in purely in oral form, but it's around this time that they start to get written down, possibly due to concerns that spoken Sumerian was becoming increasingly rare, though also possibly because some of these stories weren't actually invented until around 2000 to 1800 BCE. In any case, it is very difficult to separate out the earlier from later aspects of these stories, so I will simply present them as a single coherent mythology, even though, as I think has become clear from our last few episodes, the collection of stories from this region over the centuries is anything but a unified whole. Let's begin our story again at the beginning, this time at the beginning of humanity. According to the Sumerian Kings List, which we have multiple copies of, but one of the most important was actually written during the coming Isin dynasty, the first king was Alulim. Shortly after the creation of humanity, Ea the Wise brought civilization to the city of Eridu, creating the mess, the magical artifact thingies with the power of civilization in them. In the episode Ishtar Gains Power, I told the story of how Ishtar seduced Ea and stole the mess, bringing them to Uruk and thenceforth allowing civilization to spread across the world. But that's getting ahead of things, or I guess behind things? Anyway, when Ea brought civilization to the first city, the very concept of kingship descended from the heavens, and, for no reason ever explained to us, a man named Alulim was made the first king of humanity. He ruled for 28,800 years, a figure reminiscent of the extreme genealogies given in the book of Genesis. Alulim isn't actually important, and we don't really know very much about him aside from his name. He is, in any case, 29 kings on the kings list away from the first king that we can confirm through actual historical evidence to be real, and so may not have ever existed in any form. What is important, though, is that he had an advisor named Adapa. Adapa is sometimes equated to the biblical Adam, though really the amount of contortions necessary to make this myth fit, aside from the similar name, make me skeptical. There are also some who equate Adapa to the even more obscure character Oannes, who is called a fishman and possibly also an advisor to the first king. Having mentioned both of these things, I will mention them no more because they don't really matter. Adapa may or may not actually be his name, since the cuneiform character of the name simply means wise. It is convenient to have a counselor named Wise, but honestly, it could also simply be his name. There are plenty of Sumerian names that translate to virtues that the parents desired to foster in the child. In any case, the whole point is that we have a story about Adapa, who would be the oldest man in Mesopotamian mythos to have a story. So, with this being the Oldest Stories podcast, let's take a look at the tale of Adapa and the South Wind. This story, like so many of our stories, is damaged at the start and end, but begins with some praise of the god Ea. 
Ea is praised for his wisdom, and the story tells us that in the early days of the world, he handed out that wisdom freely to the first generation of men in his city of Eridu. Most of all, he gave it to the first king of Eridu, Alulem, who went around town every day and helped the priests pray, he helped the bakers bake, he helped carry water, and he helped the fishermen fish. A real man of the people, this Alulem. But again, he isn't important. What's important is the king's advisor, Adipa, who, once he got the king out of bed each day, would get on a boat and take it out to sea to go fishing. Well, on this particular day, the south wind, who is here imagined to be a bird creature, comes over to harass him. We're not sure why, probably just for fun. In the process, Adipa's boat gets blown over and sinks, and the sage grows so mad that he shouts at the bird. He says, No matter how you fight me, I will break your wing for this. And the force of his angry words is so great that it shatters the bird's wing, and he can't fly for seven days. Well, after seven days, An, father of the gods, and still considered most supreme in these early days of myth, realizes that the south wind hasn't been showing up for work in a week. He asks his minister, Elabrat, why this is, and the minister explains that Adapa broke its wing. An called out for Adapa to be brought before him to account for this, but as his minister was out to fetch Adapa, Ea found out and rushed over to give him some advice. Look, said Ea, god of wisdom, you can get through this. Just listen to my advice here. When you go up to heaven, mess up your hair first and only wear the dirtiest rags you have. Go like you're in mourning. Then, when you get to the gate of An's temple, you're going to be met by his two gate guards. They're going to ask you why you are in mourning. It's only natural to ask that when they see your poor state. You'll then tell them, that you're in mourning for the two gods lost from your country, and they'll ask which gods you mean. You'll then look each of them in the eye and say, you too. This doesn't sound very funny, but I promise they will find it hilarious, and having been put in a good mood, they'll introduce you favorably to An, which will put him in a good mood as well. This is called working the ref. And it's honestly the best I can do for you at this point. But then, Aya continued, even I can't see for sure what decision An will render. If he's in a bad mood, he'll offer you the bread of death and the water of death. It would be a poor decision to eat this. It has death right there in the name. And honestly, just to be safe, don't eat anything at all in heaven, no matter how hungry you get. You know, never know what's going to happen up there. But if he has a positive judgment, he may simply ask you to perform a supplication ritual. He'll give you clothes and oils, so wear these and do what you're told. This is the best advice I know how to give you, so don't forget it. A bit later, Adapa receives the formal summons to appear before An, and he isn't surprised, having been forewarned, but he is definitely nervous. Still, he wears his disheveled mourning clothes, and once he gets to the gate, he sees the two gate guards and makes the joke that Ea had prepared for him. As predicted, the guards find it uproariously funny, and are still laughing when they make the formal introduction in An's hall. An, though, is displeased. 
demanding to know why Adipa broke the bird's wing. Adipa straightens himself, and with the natural dignity of an ancient sage, he answers directly and honestly. I was in a boat on a fishing trip when your bird knocked over my boat and left me stranded in the ocean. I was so enraged at this turn of events that I shouted a curse at it. Adipa stood up for himself, presenting his case without apology even to the highest of gods. At this point, the two gate guards whispered that they liked him to An, and An himself was inclined to approve of his countenance. And so An relaxed into his throne and began to complain. You know, it was Ea who really caused all this fuss. If he'd never taught you about boats, this would never have happened, and you wouldn't have to toil as a fisherman. Really, the whole make-a-slave race of humans thing was his idea, and I was more or less on the fence about it. But don't think I haven't seen all the stress we put on our humans. I totally understand how you could get upset in this situation. You have impressed me with your wisdom. Let me do something for you. Let me have the servants bring out the bread of life and the water of life. An claps his hands and the servants bring out the yummiest looking bread that ever sat upon a plate. And water so clean and pure that it energized Adipa's soul just to be near the cup. The wise man's eyes squinted as his brow furrowed. Did he say, bread of life? Wasn't Aya's warning about the bread of death? But how would a mere mortal be able to tell the two apart? It isn't like An is eating any, and often very tempting things turn out to be very dangerous. As the wise man pondered, the two gate guards laughed at him and asked why he isn't eating. Doesn't he want to be immortal, they asked. But Adipa replied that he simply couldn't. If he had a choice, he didn't have enough information to decide if it was a good idea, and so he would simply fall back on obedience to his patron god, who advised him not to eat any food offered here. He would accept the fine clothes and oils that they offered, and he was already getting changed, but he could not know if it was wise to accept the offered food. At this, An genuinely laughed, and without explaining anything to Adipa, just sent him back to Earth. An then called out, Aya, get out here, because he knew that Aya was always eavesdropping, whenever anything interesting was going on, and, sure enough, out from around the corner came A.M. What ill has Adipa brought on mankind, the father of gods, asked the god of wisdom. Thanks to your poor advice, humanity has missed out on its chance to be immortal, and will suffer disease and death. But because I liked Adipa, I will ease humanity's suffering by assigning the goddess Nintenuga, to the domain of medicine and healing. Very sadly, the tablet containing the story breaks off there, with no clear idea of how Ea responds. There's actually a fair bit of debate whether Ea is meant here as having tricked Adipa out of immortality, perhaps to preserve the inferior status of his servant creations, or if Ea really meant to offer good advice but just messed up here. Typically, 
we see Ea as a friend of humanity, and so it's a bit unusual to see another god in that role, especially the highest god. So really, it could go either way. Another possibility is that Ea gave solid advice, but the very wise Adipa simply overthought it and should not have generalized the prohibition against the bread of death into a prohibition against all food, and it's a warning against overthinking things too much, rather like how I'm overthinking this story right now. But these tales of the early men were all quite clearly meant as parables, narrative extensions of the genre of wisdom literature, with the intent to impart a certain moral on the audience which is why it kind of invites overthinking. For example, scholars in the modern era love to compare this to the biblical story of Adam, which I did promise not to mention, but here we go, because the early Jewish patriarchs would almost certainly have been familiar with this story, given its widespread, and for them to have a story of a first man with an almost identical name, but with a completely reversed moral in their own culture is fascinating. The parallels are too tempting to ignore, but like the dignified sage, we will ignore them. Adipo would then go on to become a character synonymous with wisdom, much as how we nowadays will call someone very smart Einstein, and there are inscriptions of people claiming to be or desiring to be as wise as Adipa. There are also, in a wholly separate genre, a very fragmentary single inscription that appears to tell the very anachronistic tale of Adipa and King Enmerkar, who you may remember from all the way back at the beginning of the podcast. It is very hard to read, but in it they appear to have an Indiana Jones-style adventure in which they break into an ancient tomb. The events in this tomb are completely obscure, but at the end they flee the tomb and seal it back up for the rest of time. This is almost certainly a much later independent story just using well-known characters, but it is a fun little note, and also interesting to see that already by the Babylonian period, the chronology of the early dynastic period is so hazy as to put these two figures together, who would themselves have been separated by at least a thousand years, if indeed we take Adipa to be based on any sort of historical figure at the start of the city of Eridu. Moving a bit later in history, though still before the Great Flood, the seventh king of Sumer was Enmeduranki, also sometimes Enmedurana, with a few other spelling variations as befits a man with so long a name. He ruled from the city of Sippar, and is made even more obscure to modern scholarship because of the fact that pretty much everyone I was able to find online who talks about him is an ancient aliens person or a Bible nut, using him as proof that aliens built the pyramids or that the apocryphal book of Enoch is the true prophecy of God or something like that. He was clearly a well-known figure within Bronze Age culture because he's frequently cited as the one who brought the secrets of divination and much of the arts of the priesthood down to earth, and also regarded as the divine ancestor of perhaps the whole priestly caste or perhaps all priests of Shamash, god of the sun and protector of the city of Sippar. Like I said, it's just hard to tell with a lot of this stuff. Anyway, 
Just keep in mind that more of his story is corrupted by both the loss of records and also by misinterpretation. So I'm going to tell it as best I can, but this one is even more uncertain than most of the tales I tell on this show. It begins with the conditions of the world gradually corrupting over the generations. We seriously know basically nothing about any of the kings between the first, Alulim, and the seventh, and Maduranki, except for like names and made-up durations of reign. And in the Sumerian imagination, things were getting generally worse, until finally the sixth king was apparently openly advocating for crime to be committed in his kingdom, whatever that means. Good departed the land, and evil was the regular course of things. And the gods in heaven grew furious, abandoning the earth. And for a while, men lived like animals without gods to command them. Evil demons ruled the land unchecked, and some even penetrated into the hearts of the now-abandoned temples and pretended to be gods. And worst of all, in the natural realm, it seems the Elamites invaded and brought destruction to Sumer. Anyway... The gods grew ever more upset, but it seems that here it was Shamash who was the voice of reason. He said to the other gods that things weren't going to get any better on earth by abandoning the humans to their vicious downward spiral. And so, with the permission of the Divine Council, he took up one man who was particularly clever. This man is Enmaduranki, and the translations aren't clear as to whether he is a priest of Shamash in Sippar or the king of Sippar. Fortunately, we are able to bridge this gap because we have a bit more background knowledge than these conspiracy nuts. We know that in the very earliest days of Sumer, the position of Lugal, what's usually thought of as a king who rules through military might like Gilgamesh or Sargon of Akkad, either didn't exist yet or was very rare. Much more common was for a city to be ruled by an ensi, which is usually translated as priest-king. Quite possibly, this came about because the chief institution of the early cities was the temples, and there are some who theorize that in Mesopotamia, the whole reason for the transition from nomadic to settled life in the first place was because of a religious need to create temple structures in fixed locations, and the cities would then come to rise up around these temples after they were built. For sure, we can see the examples of temples existing without cities on the other end of history, such as the Temple of Ea in Eridu after that city is abandoned. In any case, the priest king Enmaduranki is selected to go visit Shamash, and the storm god Adad is also present as a teacher's aide. These two gods sit him on a golden throne and take the remarkable step of honoring him, though what virtues or accomplishments he's being honored for is a bit unclear. They then teach him things. Specifically, he learns how to observe the flow of oil on top of water, which brings insights into the desires of the three highest gods, An, Enlil, and Ea. He was then given a tablet of the gods, the contents of which is never specified but greatly speculated on by the more fringe elements of the internet, though likely it contained details of priestly practice. 
He was then taught about the liver, specifically about the magical discipline of horospixy, in which animals are cut open and the patterns on their internal organs reflected the condition of heaven and the underworld. Finally, he's handed a cedar rod, the badge of the priestly office, and probably also the container of more unspecified magical powers. After this, Edmund Duranke returns to Earth and gathers up the wise men of the various other cities. He then repeats the ritual with them in secret, first honoring and enthroning them, then teaching the secrets of oil reading and entrail reading, then having them copy the Tablet of the Gods, and finally, as a graduation, presenting the Cedar Rod. Though we are short on details, in large part because much of the inner workings of the priestly caste was a jealously guarded secret, we can reasonably infer in here that this is the core of a ritual of priestly confirmation. It isn't too difficult to see from some of the word choices where the ancient aliens people are latching on, and if you're into numerology, you can get to the Book of Enoch by following the number 7, but neither of these tangents are as interesting as the realization that this is a description of actual cultic practice seen through the eyes of people who lived this faith. For the benefit of the neo-pagans who listen, I will stick a copy of the best translation I can find online for this episode at oldeststories.net. Though, be warned, it is from a Book of Enoch fan, so the commentary on the rest of the site is a bit iffy. Theology for a dead religion may not sound like it. But this was also part of the corpus of wisdom literature, and a critically important one. Where did the rituals of the priests come from? Were they just made up? No, clearly they were bestowed upon the world by the gods, and have existed since the Antediluvian era. Also, note that these rituals are the gods' cure for evil overtaking the world, and presumably are at least a partial cure, since the world presumably gets better. But, you could ask, don't the gods give up and flood the world just two kings after this one? Doesn't that show that the priestly rituals aren't enough to extinguish evil from the world? This gets us to another question that I don't really have an answer for. You see, in this show we have now twice seen the gods attempt total genocide, with the root cause being the earth growing too noisy. This is the reason that Apsu and Tiamat try and kill their children in the Enuma Elish, and this is the reason given in the Flood myth for destroying humanity. It can seem a bit strange to try and kill everyone just because they're making too much noise while you're trying to sleep, but then again, there are a lot of stranger things in myth that we just accept and move through. And also, having lived next door to someone prone to loud late-night parties, I can also definitely accept that it could well drive even a god to genocide. But noisy parties may be a cultural shorthand for criminality and hooliganism. Recall back to the instructions of Shurapak, covered in the episode entitled Instructions Manual. In his very first bits of advice, only some of which I covered in the show, we saw that you are not to place your house too close to a heavily trafficked street. And from there, he gives the advice not to go too near groups of youths congregating in the street and to avoid a fight when you see it breaking out in the street. 
Perhaps we could see in this that being excessively noisy is associated with criminal behavior in Mesopotamian culture. And indeed, the image of young men sitting idle in the street with loud music playing hardly has favorable connotations in our own culture. I mean, can you visualize it? Do you see a dirty alley, graffiti, tattoos? It may just be that Noise is noise and undesirable all on its own. But it may also be that we are looking at an idiomatic expression for antisocial behaviors in general. How we interpret it would seem to have a bearing on how well these religious rituals worked for their stated purpose of maintaining social order. But I should add here at the end that these speculations never seemed to have troubled the Mesopotamians, who maintained their belief in ritual and divination until the end of their civilization. But putting that tangent to the side, there is one more myth I want to look at today, one that in its early forms can actually be traced back to the Akkadian Empire, but is going in this episode because this is kind of where it fits. After Enmiduranki, his son Ubaru Tutu is king. And after that comes Utnapishtim and the Great Flood. The earth is mostly wiped clean, and we get twelve kings about whom nothing is known but a name and implausibly long reign. Figures given here are 300 to 1200 years each which is better than the tens of thousands of years attributed to the pre-flood rulers, but it's still a bit unrealistic. But then we get to Etana, king of Kish. For those who think he was a real king, he is dated to very roughly around the mid-3000s BCE, mostly by working backwards from Enmabar Gesi, the first king on the list we are certain was a real person, and then going nine generations back to Etana. But this is a very speculative exercise. Real or not, King Etana's story begins with the foundation of the city of Kish. In this tale, the gods themselves laid down the first bricks and were hunting for a king to put on the city's throne. They pick Etana for his diligence and skill as a shepherd. We then have a massive gap in the story, and it almost feels like we've jumped onto another story, but bear with me. So, in the city of Kish, there was a shrine to a dad, and next to that shrine was a fine poplar tree. In the root of that tree lived a snake, and in the branches lived an eagle. And because they were neighbors, one day the eagle offered an oath of friendship to the snake. The snake retorted that the eagle had done terribly wicked deeds in the past, but if he was genuine about his desire to be friends, then they could go to the temple of Shamash and swear an oath before the god. Shamash being the god of contracts and oaths, this was a fairly common practice, though usually for people, not talking animals. The terms of their oath are interesting in that they can be taken as a template for the standard sort of oath that Mesopotamians would swear among each other. Whoever transgresses the limits of Shamash, may Shamash deliver him as an offender into the hands of the smiter. Whoever transgresses the limits of Shamash, may the mountain passes be far away from him. May the oncoming weapon make straight for him. May the trap and curse of Shamash overthrow him and hunt him down. A bit dramatic, but not all that different from the modern formulation of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. 
We just don't think about the implications of that when we say it anymore because of the decline in oath-speaking in modern society, which is a book-length can of worms that I will keep firmly closed for this episode. In any case, with the oath spoken, the eagle and snake formed an unbeatable tag-team. The eagle would make the kill, then offer it to the snake, who would in turn offer it to his snake children. Then, the snake would make a kill and offer it to the eagle and his children. And in this way, they could feed each other's children more and with less effort, and the eagle's children grew big and strong. But then, greed stirred in the eagle's heart, and he began to plot evil. Uh-oh. With the plan fully formed, he explained it to his children. He said, we're going to go eat those snake babies that live at the bottom of the tree. This will anger the snake, but I don't really care because we live in the sky and never need to touch the ground except when hunting land animals. The youngest eagle baby was the smartest and urged his father not to do it since it would violate an oath made before the god Shamash himself. But Father Eagle ignored his son's warning and swooped down to eat the baby snakes he had helped to fatten. That evening, when the snake father arrived at the root of the tree, he searched everywhere for his children, but all he could find were the claw marks of the eagle and blood. It didn't take Sherlock Snake to figure out what had happened, and the snake went in tears to the shrine of Shamash where he had made his oath. This eagle, he cried out, in whom he had trusted, had betrayed him in the most vicious way possible. Oh, Shamash, look at the evil that has been done to me. Do not let this eagle escape your wrath. When Shamash heard the snake's cry, he descended to the shrine and comforted the grieving father. He whispered in the snake's ear that he would have his revenge. Shamash had killed a wild bull and cut open its belly on a nearby mountain, and the snake was to follow the god's instructions and set a trap. Meanwhile, Eagle was flying around and spotted a freshly killed wild bull. The eagle began to fly towards it, but then he hesitated to land, fearing that the snake might be nearby. So he allowed some other birds to land first, and seeing this, he decided it must be safe. The wise young baby eagle urged his father not to go down since it was likely to be a trap, but the father was convinced that it was safe and landed on the carcass. The eagle moved carefully, wary of the snake sneaking up on him while he had his head down, and probably also wary of competition from other birds, but eventually he began to dig in. He bit through the flesh and meat and grabbed the delicious intestines, pulling them out. And just as he did, the snake, who had been lying in wait inside the dead animal, snapped out and bit the eagle in the wing. The snake cried out in vengeance as the eagle cried out in pain. But after the initial shock, the bird said to the snake, Yes, look, 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 I did kill your children. What do you want? Some money? How about I pay you and we call it even? This reasonable, even-handed offer was, however, unacceptable to the snake. And he screamed, You killed my children! As he ripped the pinion feathers from the eagle and threw him into a pit to die of hunger and thirst. The eagle, finding itself dying in a pit, 
wished that it wasn't dying in a pit. So every day he prayed to Shamash, promising to praise his name every day for the rest of time, if only Shamash would rescue him from this pit. Shamash finally came down, and he said, Are you kidding me? You are the worst sort of traitor and oath-breaker. I would never help you. But then he thought about it a bit, and he said, You know what? Actually, actually, you may be getting a break. Hold on there. Don't move. And the eagle said he can't move because he's stuck in a pit, but the god was already gone. At the same time, in the city of Kish, King Etana had a problem. He wanted a child, but was apparently infertile, and so in the missing part of the story appears to have searched high and low for a solution. The only solution he found was to take the so-called plant of birth, which grew only in the high heavens. And so he had been praying devoutly for years to the gods to get him this plant of birth. Finally, on this day, Shamash comes down and gives him the instructions to march over to a certain hole, where an eagle who is in his debt lays. If King Atana rescues the bird, he will fly you up to heaven and get you your plant. Well, overjoyed, Etana rescues the traitor eagle, who is very grateful for Shamash providing him the opportunity despite his horrific betrayal, and for eight months the king nurses the bird back to health, at which point it is as strong as a lion and able to fly again. So it says, I will search all the mountains for you and fetch you this plant of birth that you desire so much. And I promise not to eat any children you have later. But of course, this plant isn't in the mountains. It's up in the heavens, says the king. And so the bird says, well, I could, I could fly you up there too, no problem. So the king grabs on to the underside of the eagle and holds on tight while the eagle flies them both all the way up to heaven. At first, Etana is thrilled to be flying, and as he goes up and up, all the land features get smaller and smaller. This is great fun until he realizes that when he gets up to three whole miles, the world below him is so small that he can't actually see anything. Not just the features, but the land itself vanishes, and the oceans can't be seen either. Clearly, this disproves the ancient aliens theory, since anyone capable of space travel would know that this is not the case at only three miles high. But Atena, who is definitely not a spaceman, despite what the internet crazies want you to think, panics at the third mile, and starts to scream that he wants to get off. The bird, used to flying, tells him not to worry, but this fails to reassure the king, who lets go mid-air and begins to fall. Fortunately, the eagle is able to swoop down and catch him, but they abandoned the attempt for the time being and returned to Kish. The rest of the tale is incredibly fragmented, but the short of it is that while in Kish, Etana receives a number of prophetic dreams. Possibly also his wife receives some dreams, all of them urging him to make a return journey. So once he gets his courage together, he mounts back on the eagle and this time straps himself in securely, and the two of them fly up to heaven, receive the plant of birth, return home to Kish, and in due course, Etana is able to have the sun and air that he so desired. 
That son would go on to become king after him, but he has no stories, and so he doesn't matter. This episode is running a little bit long, but I did get in all three stories of all three early kings, which finishes up the literature which traces itself to the Issa and Larsa period. Next time, we're going to return to the actual historical narrative again and see the world and politics that spawned the writing of all these stories. So join me next time as we dive into the complicated and multipolar world of the Issan Larsa period of Mesopotamian history. Thank you for listening.